Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Crohan was somewhere I was reticent to go to because I'd heard so much about it. It's not a famous place. Most people have never even heard of it. But a friend of mine, Damien Lawler, comes from there and never stops talking about it. We all have a special place in our hearts for the communities where we grew up. But I used to think Damien took this a bit far. This is him talking about his childhood. A, a very idyllic childhood. You're able to cycle up and down to school. No safety concerns, no concerns about, you know, heavy traffic or any of that sort of thing. And, you know, you, you grew up as part of the local community, being involved in community games, being involved in the local GAA club. Every, everybody coming together, you know, to participate in those things that, you know, as a community, it, it seemed like everybody, you know, like, you know, when they were trying to make up a football team, they just didn't have enough people without every lad in each class taking part. He talks a lot like this. His pride in his home place is something I've always found hard to get my head around. Not because Crohan is not worth being proud of. I had just never been there until recently and always struggled to understand what made it so special. Like here, he's talking about the exceptionalism of people who grew up in rural communities like Crohan. When I would have went out to school, we would have looked down our nose at maybe the people from the towns. We could call, you know, townies that they were soft, that if they were, if you were marking them in a game of Gaelic football or soccer, that's, you know, they, they weren't going to be tough enough on the field. And you could see the lads that had come out, you know, came from communities like Cron. You know, they, they were used to working hard. And then, you know, on the sports field, whether in athletics or whether in Gaelic football, they were prepared to play hard as well. Hopefully you're getting the picture. Everything I'd heard about Cron made it sound like God's own country. So you can imagine I was somewhat surprised when Damien got in touch earlier this year about an idea for a podcast, a story from Cron that needed to be told. This story, in ways, flew in the face of everything I'd heard about this place. It's the story of a murder, although a highly unusual case. It had provoked an international investigation, but it was always and inextricably linked to this one community their history, and some argue, their future. The more I looked at the story, the more I was drawn to it. Damien was right. It was a story that needs to be told. This is The Road to Old Crohan, an Irish mystery, episode one. This podcast is the first of six episodes that reveal the story behind what has proven to be one of Ireland's most mysterious murders. 
It was written, researched and narrated by myself, Vin Wire. The series is based on additional research by Damien Lawler and Miriam Ryan. Sound is by Jason Looney. The series artwork by Keith Hines. The Road to Orkron was produced exclusively by the listeners of the show who generously fund my research at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. It is their generosity that has made it possible to make this series free to download. Patrons receive bonus content and early access to the show. The second episode of The Road to Orkron is already available at Patreon. If you like the idea of listener-supported history, you can help fund my work at Patreon. My next major project is a series on the Irish War of Independence. You can find out more and support this multi-part series at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You can also support the podcast by checking out the shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. You can get lots of unique gifts there based on Irish historical figures and events. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to the show to guarantee you get episode two as soon as it's out. From the outset, it was obvious that this was a story of an unsettling murder, one rooted as much in the community of Crahan today as it is in their distant past. It's a story that blurs the lines between the past and the present and what our history means to us. Crahan today is a community that faces a crisis that is leading some to focus more than ever on this murder. But this is far down the line. I'm getting ahead of myself and the beginning is always the best place to start. When Damien began to tell me about this story, it wasn't completely new to me, but I hadn't ever really connected it to the place he had grown up and always talked about. And to have any hope of telling this story, I had to go to Crohn not only to see the landscape where these events took place, but to try and integrate the stories I had heard about Crohn where Damien grew up, that's God's own country, with that of a brutal murder that was uncovered there in 2003. So recently I packed up some recording equipment and headed on the 80 kilometre journey from Kilkenny, where I live, to Crohan in County Offaly. The road trip takes about an hour and a half and as you travel north from Kilkenny City, you edge around the Castlecomer Plateau. Then the road skirts around the eastern edges of the Schlieve Bloom Mountains before the landscape turns remarkably flat and featureless. In some respects, you could even describe it as a bit dull. This is the Great Bog of Allen, around 1,000 square kilometres of bogs, marshes and fens that dominate the centre of Ireland. Passing through the small towns of Gieshel, Balnagar and Dangan, the landscape has very little to it. Then, almost as if it's out of place, there is one lonely hill that rises steeply up from the bog. This was once a volcano long before humans or any recognisable ancestor of ours walked the earth. Today, what is left is a stunning feature in an otherwise uneventful landscape. It's no surprise that this, or rather its name in Irish, Cruachan, gave its name to this part of the country. This is Crohan. I was loath to admit it, but Damien was right. It's a stunning place, and everyone here knows it. Everyone I met mentioned the hill and the landscape. Damien's wife, Miriam, is not from Crohan. She comes from Kilbegan, a few miles away but she describes herself as a blow-in, basically someone not from the parish. Whether they're from the far side of the globe or ten miles up the road, it doesn't matter, you're still a blow-in here. Even though she's not from Crohan though, Miriam also speaks really highly about the area, in the same way I've heard Damien talk about it for years. I, I am a blow-in, I'm originally from all of about ten kilometres away, as the crow flies, uh, lived in Dublin for, for many years. So when I came home, 
when I came back here, it, it was like coming home because the landscape was the same and I was quite close to home. People around here are, are very nice, you know. Um, I suspect more of them know me than, than I know. Um, but uh, certainly it's a, it's, it's a lovely place to live. Uh, the landscape is beautiful because, because of the hill and, and, and because of the bogs. And it's, um, well, I suppose you can, you can hear we're sitting here and there's not a whole pile of noise and, and the birds are singing. But it's not just people who live here that speak like this. This is the archaeologist, Cathy Moore, who spent several summers on excavations in the area, and she certainly agrees. It is a bit land time forgot in a really nice way. And the hill is gorgeous, like with the graveyard, and it's, but the bogs all around it then. It is, it's, a, it's a pretty special uh, landscape, it really is. From my limited experience, the people of Croton matched the landscape. The term idyllic comes to mind, and when I asked Tom Scully, a retired local guard, from Dangan, a town five miles away, he certainly painted a picture of a harmonious community. Dangan would be quite enough place. We'd have um, a sleepy enough village, that type of a scene. We certainly wouldn't be used to murders anyway. All in all, I was seriously impressed. The landscape is incredible and the sense of community is striking. To start explaining the story that brought me here, understanding Crohn and the landscape is key. So Damien brought me on a walk towards the hill that dominates the surrounding region. An athletics coach in his spare time, he set a fast pace. Along the way, he gestured to the flags from the local GAA or Gaelic Athletics Association. These often festoon rural communities up and down Ireland when local clubs are doing well, but to see them in the summer of 2020 was strange. The season had been cancelled due to COVID. Damien explained the displaying of the flags was a gesture of solidarity with a local family who had been bereaved. You'll see a lot of Croton flags out. There was, a, there was a recent funeral here and p- people got flags out, but they've stayed up then the full length of the, of the lockdown and the, the, the time after that. Damien is a historian. He works as a history teacher in a local school and he eased me into the history of the area. As the pace quickened and I was struggling to keep up, he pointed to a pig farm where the ruins of a castle are now part of a farmyard. This was once home to the kings of the Midlands, the O'Connors. The O'Connors had been based here. This here was an area that even after Leash Offley Plantation that would have stayed basically under traditional Irish control. He was only interrupted by a passing car, but then he continued through intriguing chapters of local history and five centuries later we had reached the 20th century and the War of Independence. There was, you know, some activity here around the War of Independence um, or the Tan War and... You would have had people imprisoned and house raids and stuff like that. When we reached the foot of Crohan Hill, we stopped briefly at Crohan Stores. This was once the centre of parish life. It's a shop with two ageing petrol pumps outside, no longer in use. It's strangely fitting or stereotypical. It almost felt like a prop inserted for the day I had arrived. Where you're standing now is basically the centre of the... Of Croton, like it's it's not a village itself, but it is the, you know the the, the area of Croton. Um, you've got the what used to be the shop. Um, it closed about eight or nine years ago. Then, as we climbed the hill, Damien explained a sense of history that I found unusual. Most communities in Ireland do have a deep affinity with their recent past, but in Croton, it stretches back thousands of years, all focused around the hill, which has been the centre of community life for millennia. This is all central to the story of the murder. It won't make sense without it, so bear with me on this. 
It was only when I reached the top of the hill that I really got why Damien had always talked about how special this place was. The landscape is flat in all directions, so Crohan Hill is an amazing vantage point with incredible views. As you, as you look all, out all around, you see that we're, you know, it's, it's completely flat. Um, you can see mountains in the background. You know, at its, some people would claim that you could see as far as Wales on a on, on a very sunny day. My eyesight's it's never been that good, but you can definitely see the sleeve blooms, and you, you can even see as far as the Wicklow Mountains um, on a particularly good day. Today is 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 almost picture perfect. I know the, the sky's not clear. You've got some cloud cover, but it's it's, it's quite sunny and stuff like that. It's easy to see why this hill is not only important today, but always has been. As we caught our breath at the top of the hill, Damien seamlessly took me back 4,000 years. History really seems like a living thing in this community. Right where we're standing, we're standing on top of a passage tomb. As a child, I would have been brought to Bruna Bonya to, you know, to, to see Newgrange and to have a look around there. I would have known that, that here in Croton we had something similar right at, right at the top, you know, a very significant site. When we started on our journey back down the hill, Damien stopped in a local graveyard and began to ease us back to the present we're standing in the middle of a graveyard, um, you know, from, from a fairly modern period. I think the grave in front of us is from 1752. And as you look around the graveyard, you, you see grave headstones from over the space of a couple of hundred years. An hour later, we were back at Damien and Miriam's house and I asked Miriam more about the history of the place and why it was so special. And a clear sense of continuity through the ages and a pride of place came across as she spoke. You would have to, to wonder, like you say, there's that passage tomb up at the top. There's the well at the back. We know that holy wells were holy long before St. Patrick ever ever landed for all sorts of, of different reasons. And you do just wonder, you know, how long that... We know hills have always been considered holy, no matter what, uh, you know, whether it was Christianity or, or, or pre-Christianity. Um, so perhaps this has been going on for a very long time. I mean, one of the things when we were looking into this the youngsters, and not always the youngsters, um, would set fire to the firs up the hill. Um, and apparently that tradition goes back a very long time. And you might think, oh, that's just kids messing. But if it is, it's, it's kids have been messing in the same way for centuries. Archaeological surveys have confirmed this ancient history. Cathy Moore, an archaeologist by trade, worked on those surveys. During the, the noughties, I was part of a field survey unit called the Irish Archaeological Wetland Unit. And we were based in University College Dublin. We were funded by the state and our brief was to survey state-owned industrial peatlands. So essentially, Bordnemona bogs of the Midlands. And between uh, 2000 and 2002, we surveyed almost all the bogs surrounding Cron Hill. So Cron Hill is this, you know, immense dramatic hill in the middle of a really flat landscape and at, and at its base all the way around it are quite large tracts of raised bog and between we used to go out in the summer for maybe six to ten weeks at a time and in those three years we found about 1200 archaeological sites in the area surrounding Crohan Hill so that's a huge amount of sites to have discovered in relatively short field seasons those bogs were absolutely full of archaeology and I suppose the, the bog that's closest to Crohan Hill is Ballybeg Bog, which is just at the northeastern foothills of Crohan Hill. And we found about 105 sites in there. And it was really it was really unusual material. It was a really um, exciting bog to work in. We found unusual prehistoric activity in that bog that we hadn't seen before. 
We also found a lot of artefacts in that bog. We found things like a beautifully preserved uh, wooden yoke that would have been used on draft animals, and that was dated to around, I think, 800 BC. We found an early Bronze Age bow stave, so a longbow made of yew. Uh, we found trackways. We found some prehistoric occupation sites. It was a really unusual, really different landscape in Ballybeg Bog to what we usually found. Hearing the accounts from local people and the ancient history of the place, it's easy to let the mind race and think Crohan is almost a magical landscape with its history that stretches back thousands of years where life is perfect. But this is 2020 and everything is going wrong from climate change to pandemics and Crohan is not without its problems. It first popped up in a throwaway remark from Damien when he was talking about his childhood. You know, like obviously as an adult you see different problems or whatever else. However, when I asked Damien about crime in the area, the answer was somewhat surprising, given the way he talks about his community. But it makes sense. Nowhere is perfect. Where most people have electric gates at this stage, you'll see most houses have cameras outside them. You know, um, their, their houses are broken into. And I suppose, as any community, you'd hope that maybe that crime comes from outside of the community. But generally, you know, a, a lot of the time... There will be, you know, there will be some sort of a local aspect to whatever crime. Miriam tempered this with her experiences. And it is, the, the, you know, the stereotypical rural crime that you hear about, break-ins and, 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 and that sort of thing. But no, it's, I, I certainly don't feel that it's unsafe or I certainly don't feel that, that the kids aren't safe. The more we talked, the complexity of life in the area began to emerge. Low-level crime you find in any rural community is by no means the most pressing problem people here face. Indeed, in this idyllic landscape, a major crisis is unfolding. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. 
At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Crohan stands at a crossroads facing a very uncertain future. While there's an intense pride in history, the people here are equally proud of the fact that they, against the odds, built a thriving community from almost nothing through the 20th century. But this is all changing now. You see, Crohan is almost like an island surrounded by bogs. Fertile land is very limited and after World War II, even better off rural communities across Ireland experienced a major crisis as mechanisation on farms left many unemployed. Crohan, however, was different. They embraced major changes and a form of industrialization. This is an important part of the story. That collapse of the agricultural economy, where ag- agriculture became much more mechanized and the demand for labor on farms became much less, that's been experienced throughout all of Ireland. But in, in, in here, you know, we, we got a way out of it because the, 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 the industrial type economy that was based around Bornemona and was based around the ESB allowed people you know, to, to survive a bit, a bit longer economically. Damien mentioned two organisations there, Bordnamona, which literally means the turf board, and the ESB, the Electricity Supply Board, both of which established large-scale industries in the region around Crohan. Bordnamona began to harvest turf from the bogs on an industrial scale, while the ESB opened a peat-burning power station. This transformed what had essentially been a wilderness into a major source of jobs. Damien's father, Eamon, who worked for the ESB and is now in his 70s, remembers the heyday of this employment when the bogs had to be drained initially by hand but then using machinery. The scale of employment was enormous. It even led to immigration into the area from the impoverished west of Ireland. In this area here, they actually had uh, had, uh, camps, you know, sort of work camps. People from all over uh, Ireland, you know, from Cork and they used to call them Westerns, actually. They're, you know, there was a massive amount of people from the west of Ireland all working on, on Bornemona. You wouldn't be talking hundreds, you could be talking thousands. This transformed not only Crohan, but also communities across the Midlands. Previously, small farmers had been dependent on the vagaries of the market for their income. After the arrival of Bornemona and the ESB, this changed, as Eamon now explains. Small farmers, they got very well off. You know, where there would be a sort of subsistence that would be bringing out their animals to sell at a certain time of the year and they'd be sort of forced to take whatever they got for them and they'd be... Whereas once Bornemon and ESB came, they weren't totally dependent. They were, they were, they were still farming, and they, but they were working and they had a weekly income, which they weren't totally dependent on on agriculture and whatever and like it was a big lift up to 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 families and everybody because of it like you know Bornemona paid uh, wages that were way ahead of what farmers would be paying and DSB paid wages that were higher than farmers and gave, gave everyone a chance to you know they could educate their children and they could do lots of things that, that they couldn't do up to that like you know In this economic boom lay the origins of the crisis now gripping Crohan it would also lead to the discovery of the body in 2003, but we'll come to that. Today, Crohan is facing a crisis because it is essentially on the front line as Ireland tries to tackle climate change. 
the peat extraction that was fueling the local economy and provided the jobs Eamon Lawler talked about is a carbon fuel and indeed is one of the worst. The Irish government have committed not only to stopping the industrial extraction of peat from bogs, but all turf cutting is coming to an end soon. Miriam explained more about this. You know, it's becoming a cutaway bog. The bog is, it, it is being eroded down to the point where it, where it doesn't return. So apart from that sort of very practical situation that it's, it's almost exhausted, there is the idea as well that it's, it's, it's not sustainable. Um, and it's, it's, it's probably not something that we, we should be doing. We probably should be looking at, at alternative sources of energy and, and more sustainable practices. The declining industry can be seen all across the area. Rusting machinery and giant heaps of milled peat, which seem to have been abandoned, can be seen in many of the bogs. While most accept this is necessary, Miriam raised some of the concerns the closure of the bogs will mean for this community. It's a very worrying time in the area. Indeed, Miriam herself works as a lecturer in Dublin City University and she, like many of her generation, now have to commute long distances to work. She now explains how day-to-day life is going to change. Generations of people um, heating their houses, um, getting their employment. It's, 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 a massive, it's a massive part, I think, of, of the identity. Like You do have the, the expectation, I suppose, that this is how you heat your house, um, the board Mona and the ESB, which sort of they were, they were quite interlinked. Um, there was employment around in the area, you know, that was the sort of the fixed, steady employment. Um, you could kind of depend on that, I suppose. Large, you know, large numbers of the community did. Um, and that's that's becoming a bit precarious. So I think on the one hand, people aren't people aren't blind to what's happening. But on the other hand, it, it, it is a big part of community and part of the way of life that, uh, that's, that's been that's coming to an end I suppose Kevin Barry from Dangan a few miles away who spent his entire life working on the bog articulated best the fears many in the area have about what lies ahead I, I would have been reared right beside the bog as well myself I reared a family over any home built a house and it's coming to an end I know but it's, uh, it'd be sad for me now I don't know where they're ever going to get jobs that come ever like it again and great, good jobs now. No one really knows for sure what the future holds for Crohan. And this is worrying because Bortamona and the ESB were central to the sense of identity and pride people here felt. And now it's being ripped away. Therefore, it does seem strange that in this moment of great uncertainty, this seemingly idyllic community is increasingly talking about one of its greatest mysteries, arguably its darkest secret. This is actually why Damien contacted me, saying the story needed to be told. A body discovered in 2003 during work on the bog is both intrinsically linked to Crohan's past and perhaps its future. That day in 2003 was certainly traumatic. Kevin Barry, who we just heard from, who has worked on the bog all his life, remembers it very well. I was working for Bullrush Horticultural out in Crohan Bog, digging drains, and I was digging this drain this particular day. I was around half three in the evening, and I dug up a bucket full of stuff, and I thought I'd seen something like a leg hanging out of the bucket, and I go out to examine it, and when I looked at it, it was uh, an arm. When I knew it was an arm because I got down and I looked, I could see the, the, the fingernails and everything, and they were perfect on it, as good as, good as anyone's. So I got back in the digger and I spread it out and there was a sort of, it was a torso, it was the, the upper part of the body, 
of, uh, of uh, these two arms and uh, the body. What Kevin had found was deeply distressing. There was no question the person had been murdered. All that remained was a human torso with its arms intact. The head was missing, as was the rest of the body beneath the navel. They had suffered appallingly. Perhaps what made it even more distressing was that Kevin had not just found a skeleton, he had discovered a human body with skin. Torso was the very same as real hard leather. Two arms was fully done and you could see where he was staked to the ground. The muscles of his arm, you could see where the hazel rods was painted and poked through his arms. And there was a bracelet on, on his left arm up over where the hazel rods was poked through him. Shocked and astounded, Kevin's thoughts immediately went to one place. Yeah, I thought it might have been Fiona Pinder and I said that all along, I thought, because that was the highlights was going around here the whole time that time. Fiona Pender was a local woman from Tullamore who went missing in 1996. This had led to extensive searches, but these had failed to locate Fiona or any trace of what had happened to her. There was, at the time, widespread speculation that Fiona, along with a series of other young women who had disappeared in the Midlands of Ireland, were the victims of a serial killer. As his initial shock subsided, Kevin began to realise the body he had discovered could not have been that of Fiona Pender. Then after a while I grew to knew it wasn't it because the hands is fierce big. That man was six foot six. I knew then it wasn't, it wasn't a girl's hand anyhow and he was a big, very big man. For Kevin Barry, still on the bog, his immediate concern was that he had damaged the body. My part then I was after doing harm with the book of the stuff as well. And Kevin then rang his boss. I rang my boss. He wasn't long after leaving the bog and I rang him and... God, he says, I don't want to see your body. He says, what about me up here beside it anyhow? He says, you may come back anyhow. And, oh, yeah, I will come back, says Kevin. And he came back. And he had a look at her and he said, we'd have to get the guards. The guards, the Irish police were then contacted. The guards come out there from Eaton Derry. And Tom Scully was the dangling guard. But he was working from Eaton Derry and he was on in maybe, maybe 15 minutes or less. We met him in the town of Dang and we brought him out to it and and he rang back in, and in, in 20 minutes, the whole place was littered full of cars. Tom Scully was the guard on duty that day. I was working that day. I was in Eden Derry. I got the call to uh, that there was a body found in a bog in Dangan, and I went to the scene. At the scene, I met Kevin Barry. He was the chap that on the, the digger that found him. TV shows like CSI lead us to believe that the early stages of a murder investigation are all flashing blue lights and drama, but the initial phase of Crohan was quite different. From a factual point of view, it was dull enough. Uh, you know, an ordinary... I was on my own most of the day there with him. Ultimately, Tom's role was to secure the scene. Just to secure the scene, make sure that no members of the public get in until the Technical Bureau or some crowd like that come down and take a look. That wouldn't happen until the following morning, but when Kevin Barry arrived into work, the day after he found the body, the situation had changed dramatically. The next morning I went into work, there was that many cars, a hurry could get into work, and the sergeant of Stang and Joe Egan was there the next morning, and then there was uh, more guards there going around, but it was the biggest job was to keep them away from the body. They all wanted to get up to get a photograph of the body. And he had a full-time job keeping them away, you know, and that's the truth, yeah. And, and we had to make bridges up to it. They sort of with timber and made bridges up to it uh, because we knew that there would be more people coming and 
Dr. Mary Cassidy did that one. She was coming as well. So Kevin there is talking about Professor Mary Cassidy, one of Ireland's state pathologists at the time. She was contacted to carry out an autopsy on the body. I was initially contacted by the guardie, and that's the norm in cases where the coroner has been informed that there's been a body found. And they normally leave it to the guardie to contact the relevant personnel. And in a case like this, where there is an unusual find, it usually would be contacting the Office of the State Pathologist, but also having a Garda presence in the form of the Technical Bureau. And that's the group of Garda who are specially trained in investigating suspicious deaths and homicides. And so they comprise a team of a photographer, a fingerprinter, ballistics expert, mapper, and anybody else they think might be relevant to any investigation. So we were all dispatched to the scene of the find of the, the body. She arrived in Croham that morning and remembers the scene that greeted her. So I arrived at the scene and was escorted across the field to where the body was was lying. And But this time it was covered over. And as I say, the photographer had taken photographs. They had had a look at it. So when I arrived, they pulled back the coverings to reveal this body. For Professor Cassidy, even though she had had years of experience, it was quickly obvious to her this was not a normal case. Well, it was it was way outside my area of experience. I had never dealt with anything like this before. So it could have been months old, it could have been years old, it could have been hundreds of years old, it could have been thousands of years old. Meanwhile, the community was stunned. Damien Lawler, who was working away from Crohan at the time, now talks about how people felt about the fact that a body had been lying somewhere where they had worked on the bog year in, year out. The community in Croton itself, nobody expected that a body was going to be taken out of the bog. Um, everybody spent so much time down there cutting turf, putting it in heaps, loading it up in trailers. You know, the last thing you expected that a body was going to f- fall out of the side of a drain. The discovery of this body was only the beginning. In the coming days and weeks, teams of experts would arrive in Croton trying to find clues. Tune in next week to part two of The Road to Ocran when this murder investigation takes a very unusual twist. <laughs>